Exodus chapter 15. There are 27 verses in this chapter, and 18 of them, actually 19 of them, are the verses to a song. So let's read this together. Exodus chapter 15. Then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord and spoke, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea. His chosen captains also are drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy in pieces. And in the greatness of your excellence, you have overthrown those who rose against you. You sent forth your wrath. It consumed them like stubble. And with the blast of your nostrils, the waters were gathered together. The floods stood upright like a heap. The depths congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be satisfied on them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? And who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You, in your mercy, have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. The people will hear and be afraid. Sorrow will take hold of the inhabitants of Philistia. And the chiefs of Edom will be dismayed. The mighty men of Moab, trembling, will take hold of them. And all the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away. Fear and dread will fall on them. By the greatness of your arm, they will be as still as a stone." Till your people pass over, our, our Lord, till your people pass over, whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them in the mountains of your inheritance, in the place, O Lord, which you have made for your own dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. For the horses of Pharaoh went with chariots and his horsemen into the sea, and the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the children of Israel went on dry land in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took the timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dances. And Miriam answered them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. 
So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea, and then they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days into the wilderness and found no water. Now when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore the name of it was called Marah. And the people complained against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? So he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. And when he cast it into the waters, the waters were made sweet. And there he made a statute and an ordinance for them. And there he tested them and said, If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have brought on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Ilam, and there were twelve wells of water and seventy palm trees. So they camped there by the waters. Father, we ask that you would, by the power of your Spirit, open our hearts and open our minds. Lord, let this gospel plow the fallow grounds of our heart. That, Lord, your seed, your good seed would be planted there. That it would bring forth a righteous harvest of fruit to the glory of your name. Father, we pray that you would pour the water of your spirit upon the ground of our heart and cause our seed to spring forth in life to give witness to your glory. We ask this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, back in the day, we used to sing a song. It was based on this section of scripture right here. It went something like this. I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and the rider thrown into the sea. I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and the rider thrown into the sea. O Lord, my God, my strength, my song, has now become my victory. O Lord, my God, my strength, my song, has now become my victory. For the Lord is God, and I will praise Him, my Father's God, and I will exalt Him. The Lord is God, and I will praise Him, my Father's God, and I will exalt Him. That song came from Miriam, from Moses. That's a song the children, I don't know if that was the tune they sang, but that is the song the children of Israel saying part of it after they crossed through the Red Sea and they saw God defeat their enemies. If you remember last week, we talked how God commands our faith, God commands our obedience, God commands our salvation, God commands our fear, and we see that God commands our praise. The Lord delivered Israel, and Israel sings praise to God. There are a lot of ways you can praise God, and we should praise God in all manner. We should praise Him in the way we talk, in the way we walk, the way we conduct ourselves. But there is a reason why we assemble together as the body of Christ and we sing songs. Because singing is a form of praise that we see offered up to God from the very beginnings of our faith. <clears throat> So Israel sings praise to God. It's recorded here that 
It says, Then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord. It was a song of spontaneous, prophetic praise to the Lord. Then Miriam and all the women went out with timbrels, tambourines, and with dance. And we see this picture of all Israel declaring God's praise. And we see in this song that there were very specific things that they communicated. <clears throat> now, I don't ever tell Caleb what songs to pick. He asked me sometimes, but I'd never say, hey, I want you to sing this, or I don't want you to sing that. But I do know this, that there is a very purposeful, intentional method that we sing songs that communicate truth. That we sing songs that are not just emotional to make us feel a certain way, but we sing songs that communicate truth. Truth about what God has done, truth about who God is, and truth about what God will do. And that's exactly what we see in this song here that the children of Israel offer up to God. Their praise recounted what God had done. It recounts the mighty works of deliverance that God wrought in Egypt, that he wrought when he opened up a path through the wet Red Sea, and when he closed that path and destroyed the Egyptian army and the enemies of God's people. It recounted what God had done in his mighty works of deliverance. We see also that it declares who God is. If you look at this song, if you have your Bible, if you look there, you'll see that in verse 2, for instance, it says, The Lord is my strength and my song. This is who God is. He is our strength. God is our song. He has become my salvation. God is our salvation. He is my God. He is my Father's God. This speaks of generational worship. You see, what you're doing right now in coming here, hopefully week in and week out, in bringing your children here, in, in all of us coming and worshiping with these little ones so that these little ones are in this place and they may seem like they're not paying attention. It may seem like they're not really comprehending. But I always tell parents this. How do your children learn to talk? Do you sit down and have three hours of English language class with them every day? Or have they just hung around you enough because you've talked to them and they've heard you talk to others and before you know it, they just start talking? That's kind of how it happens, isn't it? All those times you didn't think your children were paying attention, they actually were paying more attention than you thought. Ask my wife who works at Head Start and those little bitty kids who shouldn't know some of the words that they know. And they're saying words and doing things that three-year-olds and two-year-olds and four-year-olds should not be saying and doing. Where do you think they learn that? They learn that by listening 
to and watching their parents and the people that they live around. Our children are watching, our children are listening, and even right now, as distracted as they may seem, they are hearing the gospel. They are hearing you offer praise to God. They are watching you, parents. They are watching you, brothers and sisters in Christ. They are watching you offer your worship to God. There is a very important reason why we gather, why we assemble together. People often tell me, well, I don't need to come to church to have a relationship with God. That's really not even the question we should be asking. Because we have a relationship with God, we should want to come. And we should want to give witness to that relationship. And we give witness for very good reason, because that witness speaks of what God has done. It speaks of who God is. Not just for us, but for those who came before us and for those who will come after us. He is my Father's God. I will exalt Him. There's the generations worshiping. The generations have worshiped since the beginning. That's why we are here today worshiping. Generations before us worshiped. Generations after us will worship. Let's do our job. Let's offer our worship and our praise excellently so that the generations following us will have had a good example to model their praise and their worship after. It says, He is a man of war. The Lord is his name. The Lord is a man of war. This is who he is. He is a man of war. The Lord is his name. In other words, he's not just a man, but he is the Lord. That word Lord there, if you notice in your Bible, that word is always written capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Now you might not notice that if you're not paying real close attention, but if you look in your Bible in the Old Testament here in Exodus, you're going to see that that word Lord is all caps. It's like a big L and then little lowercase caps, but it's all caps. It's the English translation of this word of the name of God that was given to Moses. Remember when Moses is minding his own business, walking around the backside of the desert, keeping his father-in-law's sheep, and he sees a bush burning with fire, but it's not consumed. And he goes over to that bush, and the bush speaks to him. It's the Lord. It was the Lord in the midst of the bush. And he says, take your sandals off, or you're standing on holy ground. And then he tells Moses, I want you to go to Egypt. You're going to deliver my people. And Moses is like, who am I? Who am I? That uh, you would use me. Why are they going to listen to me? And who, who should I tell them has sent me? And he says, tell them the Lord. Tell them I am. It is this Hebrew word that's translated the Lord. It's the closest we can get in English. What it literally means is the self-existent one. So there's a reason why in this song that's declaring who God is. He is a man of war. And the very next verse says, he is the Lord. He is a man of war, but he's not a man. He's not just a man. 
Jesus was a man, but he was not just a man. He was and he is God. He is the Lord. He is the self-existent one. He was not created by anyone. He has always existed in and of himself. That's why he's called the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. In other words, he is the infinite one. He has no beginning and he has no end. He is the Lord. The Lord is his name. So this song, it recounts what God has done. It declares who God is and it proclaims what God will do. You will bring your people in and plant them in the place you have made. The place which your hands have established. Now hold your place in Exodus. Let's just take a Let's take a journey over to the New Testament. Let's go to John, the Gospel of John, John chapter 14. John chapter 14, verse 1 through 3. If you, if you didn't go to church regularly, you would almost certainly hear this verse at many funerals. It's a very common verse that's quoted at funerals. And I'm not saying it shouldn't be. But let's, let's understand what Jesus is saying. So here's the context of John 14. Jesus is just finishing the Passover meal with his disciples. He is telling them, I'm going away, but I'm going to send the Holy Spirit the comforter to you, and it's to your advantage that I go away. And they're like, oh no, Jesus, don't go away. Don't leave us. So this is literally hours before his arrest and crucifixion and death on the tree. The words of Jesus, John 14, verse 1, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am there, you may be also. Let me remind you, let's go, let's, let's, let me tell you what, what this song says. Verse 17 of Exodus 15, you will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance in the place, O Lord, which you have made. In other words, in the place that you have prepared for your own dwelling, the sanctuary of the Lord, which your hands have established. Jesus tells his disciples, don't be fearful. Don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe in me also. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would not have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Turn, turn back a few pages to Mark's gospel. Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, verse 58. Mark 14, 58. Now, this is in the context of those that are giving false witness to Jesus. 
trying to get him crucified. It says in verse, look at verse 56, For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. Then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But not even then did their testimony agree. Now what they were referring to was the words of Jesus himself. When Jesus is telling them when, they're, when he's with his disciples and they're in the temple and they're saying, look at this beautiful temple, Lord. And he makes this statement. It's recorded for us in John's gospel. He said, I will destroy this temple and in three days I will build it again. And they said, you're crazy. It took 40 years to build this temple. How are you going to rebuild it in three days? And John's gospel says, he spoke concerning his body. He spoke by the Spirit, concerning his body, but they did not understand. When Moses and Miriam and the children of Israel are singing this song, you will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, in the place, O Lord, which you have made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. They're not talking about a physical building. They're not talking about a tabernacle made with linen curtains and animal skins. That is declaring what God will do prophetically. It's speaking of the Lord Jesus who is the temple of God. The Lord Jesus who is. This is what John writes in Revelation. We're studying Revelation on Wednesday night. We'll get to that part, the end of Revelation in chapter 21, where it gives the vision. It says, there was no sun, there was no moon. I saw no temple there, for the Lamb is its light, and the Lamb is its temple. Well, what does the Bible say about you and I? Does the Bible refer to you and I as temples? Yes, it does. In fact, Paul writes in Ephesians that we are the house of God being built up. Peter writes, you are lively stones being built up into a holy habitation. You are the temple of God. Paul writes in Corinthians, honor your bodies for your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Bible uses this language. It paints this picture, this reality that we are the temple of God. Why are we the temple of God? Because Christ lives in us. God lives in us by his Holy Spirit. Christ lives in us by the Spirit that dwells in us. What was the temple? It was the place where God dwelt. What was the tabernacle before they built the temple made out of limestone? It was the place where God dwelt. In the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was, between the wings of the cherubim, there was the presence of God. And it was this earthly picture of God dwelling among his people. Well, guess what? The Ark of the Covenant disappeared when the Babylonians invaded Jerusalem back in the, but, but long before Christ was born, 600 years before the birth of Christ, and the Ark of the Covenant has never been seen since then. People mistakenly think that the Ark of the Covenant was in the temple when Jesus walked the earth. The Ark of the Covenant was 600 years long gone 
by the time Jesus walked the earth. And it has not been found to this day. Some people think it's in Ethiopia. Some pe people think it's buried under there somewhere in the Temple Mount. Listen, I'll tell you where the ark is. He's in heaven. His name is Jesus Christ. He dwells in you. That gold box with those wings on it was only a, a man-made picture of the true ark who is Jesus Christ. That temple that the Jews were so impressed with, that they were so offended by when Jesus said, tear this temple down and I'll rebuild it in three days. They were offended at Jesus. They were angry at Jesus. They were ready to kill him right there because they believed he disrespected the temple. Well, guess what? In 70 AD, just 40 years after the crucifixion of Jesus, Guess what God did? God sent the Roman army and they destroyed that temple. And guess what? He has not allowed that temple to be rebuilt to this day. And guess what? He will not allow that temple to be rebuilt again. You know why? Because Jesus is the third temple. Jesus is, by his own words, he is the temple that he would raise up. He is the temple made without hands. What is what is the prophetic declaration all the way back on the other side of the Red Sea? What's the prophetic declaration? You will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance in the place, O Lord, which you have made for your own dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. Guess what, church? You are the sanctuary that God has established. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. This is what the Bible teaches us. Christ doesn't dwell in some building of rock and brick and mortar. He dwells in you. You are the temple made without hands. Now that ought to make you shout right there because that's good news. We should be reminded of that when we're down on ourselves, when we're down in life, when it seems like we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death and darkness, you need to be reminded of who you are. You need to be reminded of who God is. You need to be reminded of what He has done, who He is, and what He will do. And you are a product of all of that. You are a product of what He has done. You are a product of who He is. And you are a product of and a witness to what he will do. This is the song of praise that Israel, the people of God, offered up to the Lord. Verse 22, then it says, the Lord brings Israel out. Israel went three days into the wilderness. So picture this, God has them at the Red Sea, then he splits the sea, brings him through, closes the sea up, destroys his enemies. And now he's leading them into the wilderness for three days. And it says, for three days they find no water. Now this is the second time that it seems to the children of Israel that they are being led to their death. First time they come out of Egypt, they're all excited because the Egyptians give them all this clothing and all this jewelry, all this gold and silver and, and all this provision. And they're all excited until they get to the Red Sea and you got mountains on the right and mountains on the left and a Red Sea right behind you. And they look behind them as they 
have come from Egypt and they see this dust cloud and they realize the Egyptian army is coming. Descending down on them and they, remember, are in the worst possible place to try to defend themselves. There is no way for them to defend themselves. They have a whole sea behind them. It's the only place they can go. And what does God do? He opens up the Red Sea. So their first problem was they had too much water, right? First at the Red Sea of water before the Egyptians, they were like, we're, we're trapped. Now they're in the desert, in the wilderness, and they go from having too much water, now they can't find any water. No water for three days. And then verse 23 says, the Lord brings Israel... To Mara, that word Mara means bitter. Is, he brings Israel to Mara, and it says that they can't drink the water because the water is bitter. And so, what do they do? The children of Israel complain. They cried out to Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Then Moses cries out to the Lord. So, after three days of finding no water, God leads them to a place with water but the water is bitter and they can't drink it. Almost seems like a cruel joke, doesn't it? That word Mara, which means bitter, is what Naomi called herself when she came back. In the book of Ruth, in the book of Ruth, it's the story of Naomi and her family. There's a famine in Bethlehem and Naomi and her family leave Judah and they go to the land of the Moabites. And Naomi and her husband and her two sons go to the land of the Moabites and they live there and the sons marry Moabite women. The father dies. Naomi's, Naomi's husband dies. And then her two sons die. And Naomi is left with these two Moabite daughter-in-laws. And she says, go back, go back. I have nothing for you. And Orpah finally relents and goes back. But the Bible says Ruth clung to Naomi and would not leave her. So one of the most beautiful sections of prose that man has ever heard. I always read this at weddings. Ask me not to leave you, nor to depart from you. For my people will be your people. Your people will be my people. Where you die, I will die. Where you're buried, there I will be buried also. Bottom line was, Ruth said, I ain't leaving you. So they go back because the famine's over. And when she gets back, the people rejoicing. Oh, Naomi, you're back, you're back. Naomi says, don't rejoice and don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Because God has dealt bitterly with me. Well, we're not in Ruth today. We're in Exodus. Go read Ruth and you'll find out that it has a happy ending. Because God knows how to take the bitter and make it sweet. God turns bitter into sweet in his way and in his time. Then verse 25 says, The Lord shows Moses a tree. So they get to Mar, they can't drink the water, the water's bitter, the people of, of, of uh, Israel begin to complain. They complain to Moses. Moses says, God, what do I do? 
And the Bible says in verse 25 that the Lord shows Moses a tree, period. And then it says that Moses takes that tree and he casts it into the water. The Lord shows Moses a tree. Israel is shown a tree that will make the bitter sweet. Moses cast the tree into the waters, and the waters were made sweet. God used the tree to heal the waters. As you read the Bible, you should notice, you should note this, that the Bible often uses the picture of water to speak of peoples, nations. In fact, in the book of Revelation, John in his vision sees a, a woman sitting on a beast on many waters. And the angel says, the waters represent the nations. And this is true throughout Scripture. God uses things that are common to us, things we encounter all the time, to picture for us spiritual truths. And here, God shows Moses a tree, and Moses casts the tree into the waters, and the waters are healed. God used a tree to heal the waters, just like God used a tree to heal the waters of Mara. God used a tree to heal the nations. Jesus hung on a tree and died for our salvation. This is a picture of the cross of Christ that makes the bitter sweet. There was nothing more bitter than the cross, yet God took the bitterness of the cross and he brought the healing of the nations. In verse 25, it says, The Lord tests Israel. Israel received a statute, an ordinance at Marah. The Lord tests Israel at Marah. God gives Israel the answer to the test, though. God tests us. Do you ever have teachers in school who let you have open book tests, open book exams? They say, well, I'm going to give you a test day, but I'm going to give you the answers to the test. That's what God has done for us. God tests us quite frequently, but God has given us the answer to the test. The Bible says that the Lord tested Israel at Marah, but he gave them the answer to the test. The answer is faith. The answer to every test God gives you is faith. If you don't know what to do when you're tested, here's the answer. It's always correct. Trust God. I don't know what to do. Trust God. Uh, this just happened to me, and I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do. Trust God. Yeah, but I don't know what I'm supposed to do. That's okay. Trust God. He'll let you know. Well, what if he doesn't let me know? Stop that. Trust God. He will let you know. Yeah, but he's not going to let me know when I want him to let me know. Yeah, he might not do that. That's why you have to trust God. God used the tree to heal the waters. He gave Israel a test. Our greatest tests often come in our most bitter places, but so does God's greatest salvation. Salvation was and always will be by grace through faith. It was at the Red Sea and at Marah, and it is for us today. 
It was the grace of God. It wasn't the tree that turned the water sweet. It was the grace of God that turned the water sweet. The cross is a picture of God's grace that makes the bitter sweet. And God still tests his people today. James writes in James chapter 1, verse 12, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, that word approved or proved means tested. When he has been approved, when he has been tested, he will receive the crown of life. When he passes the test, he will receive the crown of life. Life is a test. If you haven't figured that out already, you will soon. But here's, here's where our trust must be. Our trust must not be in your ability to pass the test. Your trust needs to be in the one who has already passed the test for you. Jesus Christ. He has secured the crown of life. You will receive the crown of life if Jesus Christ is your Lord, if he is your Savior, you will receive the crown of life because he has received the crown of life. You will pass the test because he has already passed the test. And you're not trusting in your ability to pass a test. You're trusting in the reality that he has already passed it for you. All you have to do is trust him. Verse 26, the Lord promises Israel at Marah. Here's this promise. I am the Lord who heals you. He says, pay attention, give ear to my commandments, keep my statutes, and I will put none of the diseases on you that I brought upon the Egyptians. For I am the Lord who heals you. This is God's promise to those who love him. The words of Jesus recorded for us in John 14, verse 15 are these, If you love me, keep my commandments. The Lord brings them then from Marah. So he takes them across through the Red Sea. Three days into the wilderness, they have no water. They're, they're dying of thirst. He brings them to Marah. There's water, but they can't drink the water because the water is bitter. They begin to complain, but God shows Moses a tree. Moses cast the tree into the waters and the bitter waters turn sweet and then God doesn't keep them there. God takes them to a place called Elam. It's a place where it says there were springs of water and there were 70 palm trees. Do you know what this place is? Do you know where Israel was? They were in the desert. You ever watch a movie where people are in the desert and they have these mirages and they're seeing and then they finally come upon an oasis in the midst of the desert. This is what Elam is. It's, a, it's an oasis in the midst of this desert, in the midst of this wilderness. The Lord brings them to Elam. The Lord's promise leads to his salvation. The children of Israel go from too much water at the Red Sea to no water in the wilderness to bitter waters at Marah, but God made a way each time. He opened a path in the sea. He turned the bitter sweet, and finally he brings them to the waters of Elam. And God is consistently showing his faithfulness even in the face of what? Even in the face of Israel's unfaithfulness. 
I mean, just three days earlier, they saw God do this miraculous thing, and now three days later, they're complaining. Doubt, unbelief, it's chronic. Not just with Israel, it's chronic with us. But yet, in the midst of our unfaithfulness, in the midst of our faithlessness, God is consistently faithful. God brings them to a literal oasis in the midst of the desert. Christ is God's promise of a land flowing not only with milk and honey, but much, much more. Elam is a picture of Christ for us in this world. He has become our oasis of righteousness, peace, and joy, who is our life in this wilderness of sin and of death. God's promise to transform the dry desert into rivers of living water. Jesus is God's promise to make the desert bloom and rejoice, to make streams and pools of water in the desert. Turn over to, to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 35. I had a couple of guys come visit me yesterday. Dakota and Israel. I want you to pray for them. They were Jehovah's Witnesses. <clears throat> now, when the, Je when the Jehovah's Witnesses come to my house, they don't come very often because I live kind of out in the country. I never tell them I'm a pastor. If they asked me, I would have told them, but they, they never, don't ask because they're not expecting to meet a pastor. So, you know, I had my work clothes on. I had, my, you know, my, my, just my T-shirt, my plain old T-shirt, my dirty work pants, and my, my old scraggly work shoes, and and uh, the guys are there working on the house, and so I hear this knock at the door. I go out there, and here's these two guys, and I knew immediately who they were. I knew they weren't Mormons because their shirts weren't white, and um, I, I knew immediately who they were. They were the Jehovah's Witnesses, and so uh, they introduced themselves, very kind, very polite, and uh, they said, we want to talk to you about the kingdom. Do you, have you ever heard about the kingdom of God? I said, oh, yeah. You know, they said, oh, that, that's good. You know, a lot of people have never heard of the kingdom of God. And uh, they said, uh, do you, you have a Bible? I said, oh, yeah, I've got a Bible. And they said, uh, do you ever read your Bible? I said, oh, I like to read my Bible. Oh, really? They said, well, we don't meet very many people who read, actually read their Bible. They said, it's kind of, kind of exciting when you meet someone that actually, you know, uh, likes to read their Bible. So we start, to, you know, and I'm just, answering their questions. I'm asking them questions. I'm not telling them I'm a pastor, you know, and it gets pretty involved. And he, you know, finally they're like, well, God, you have some really good questions, you know, and, you know, if you ever ask us a question we can't answer, you know, we'll, we'll find the answer for you. I said, oh, that's great, you know, and they're like, well, gosh, we don't meet very many people who like to talk about the Bible. And they said, would it be all right if we come back and uh, visit with you? I said, oh, I'd love for you to come back. And, uh, and they said, I said, I'm kind of hard to catch. I said, but Saturday morning is usually a pretty good time to catch me. I said, you know, oh, well, can we come back Saturday morning? I said, that'd be great. And uh, he said, now I don't want to give you any homework or anything. I said, oh, no, that's fine. I said, homework's good with me. And so, um, but one thing I noticed as... He has his Bible out. I didn't have my Bible. He had his Bible. And he had just specific scriptures. And then they had, a, they had, a, they had an app on their phones. And, and he, had a, he had a website that just had these points, points of scripture to deal with. Which can be fine. But if we're just dealing with 
isolated scriptures and we're taking isolated scriptures out of the Bible to prove our opinions and our points that we want to prove, we're not doing the scripture justice. Now, lest you think that the Jehovah's Witnesses are the only people guilty of that, don't, don't think that. Because there's a lot of Christians guilty of that. The importance of reading your Bible from front to back, the importance of reading the whole counsel of God, because it is the whole counsel of God that reveals to us what God has done, who God is, and what He will do. And so here we have this picture of God leading His people from the bitter waters of Mar, the waters that He's made sweet, and He brings them to this oasis. And this oasis is no doubt clearly a picture of who Christ is to us in this world. Now I want to read to you from Isaiah. I actually, I'm going to read the whole chapter to you. It's not a, not a long chapter. It's just 10 verses. Isaiah chapter 35. Listen to the prophet Isaiah. The wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice. Even with joy and singing, the glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the excellence of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the excellency of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are fearful hearted, be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Look at verse 5. Then the eyes of the blind shall shall be opened. The ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. The lame shall leap like a deer. The tongue of the dumb shall sing. The waters shall burst forth in the wilderness. The streams in the desert, the parched ground shall become a pool. The thirsty land springs of water in the habitation of jackals where each lay. There shall be grass with reeds and rushes. Are you seeing this picture? that God is turning this dry desert wasteland into a lush garden. Verse 8, a highway shall be there and a road, and it shall be called the highway of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for others. Whoever walks the road, although a fool, shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast go up on it. It shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Wow. Man, what a picture. Well, when is that going to happen? I'm ready right now. You know, there's people, there's people who believe that the geographic location of the nation we call Israel, that this is being fulfilled in Israel right now because Israel is exporting vegetables and fruit and they've learned how to irrigate and they've learned how to take salt water and make it fresh water and they're irrigating the land and, and it's becoming fruitful. That's all well and good. But I'm going to tell you something, church. What Isaiah, what the prophet Isaiah wrote about, what he spoke about is about something so much greater than our ability to produce agricultural produce, fruits 
and vegetables in a desert and dry land. No, Isaiah wasn't talking about agriculture and irrigation and turning salt water into fresh water and growing fruits and vegetables in the midst of the desert. He was talking about something much, much, much greater than that. What Isaiah was prophesying about was the Lord Jesus Christ because the Lord Jesus Christ, he is our oasis. Well, he's not just an oasis. He is now overtaking the desert. He is causing the desert to bloom and to rejoice. He is causing the waters to flow out of the rock he is causing the dry places to become pools. He's causing streams and rivers to flow through the desert. That's what Isaiah 35 says. How do we know that? Let's turn to our New Testament. This is how you need to read. This is how you need to study the Bible. It's all connected. The Bible wasn't given to you to take little refrigerator verses out and put them on your bumper sticker or on your refrigerator so you can latch on to, to, to a single truth. The Bible was given to you so that you could read it from front to cover so that you can meditate on it, pray on it, and begin to see in all the fullness that God will allow us to see in our limited capacity this God and who he is, what he has done, who he is, and what he will do. In Matthew chapter 11, we have John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus, in prison. And we know from the record of the scripture that eventually John the Baptist has his head chopped off by King Herod. But before John gets his head taken off by King Herod, he's in this prison and Jesus is out, and Jesus, the Messiah, is preaching the message of the kingdom. Matthew 11, verse 1, Now it came to pass, when Jesus finished commanding his twelve disciples, that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. And when John heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? And Jesus answered and said to them, Go tell John the things which you hear and see. And what does Jesus do? Jesus quotes from the prophet Isaiah. He quotes from Isaiah chapter 29, 18. He quotes from Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1. Because what Isaiah is writing about, what Isaiah is prophesying about is who Jesus is. And he says, go tell John the things you hear and the things you see. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. This is the picture that Jesus painted for John the Baptist as John waited in prison for the coming Messiah. John knew and Israel knew that it was time for the Messiah to come because how did they know that? They had the prophecies. They had the prophecy of Daniel. They could count. And they knew because God gave Daniel a timetable. And so now here is Jesus. And John says, are you the one or do we look for another? And Jesus doesn't say yes or no directly. He says yes, definitely. He quotes the scripture and he says, go and tell John what you hear and what you see. And what we hear and what we see is that Jesus was literally fulfilling what the prophets had 
proclaimed. The Messiah has come. Jesus is now, right now, and he has been since his coming. He is turning the dry desert wilderness into streams and rivers and pools of living water. He is making the desert bloom and rejoice. You are the ground and you are the land that he is transforming. You and I are the desert that has bloomed and we should be rejoicing. From your heart is flowing rivers of living water. For the source of those waters dwells in you by by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. You are a vessel, a jar of clay, the Bible says, with an endless supply of oil. Your supply of oil is more endless and more greater than that of the widow of Zarephath. Remember that story in 1 Kings chapter, chapter 7? When uh, the lady was there, chapter 17, verses 7 through 16, when the prophet is there, Elijah's there and, and the widow's there and she said, we're going to die. I'm making a cake. He said, make me a cake too. Uh, seems kind of cruel, right? Her and her son, their last meal before they die. He said, make me a cake and go take those jars and uh, go fill them up with oil. We don't have any oil. Miraculously, the oil comes. And there's an endless supply. You're a vessel. You're a jar of clay with an endless supply of oil for the Holy Spirit of God lives in you if you belong to Christ. And that same Spirit will strengthen your mortal body. This is what Romans 8, 9 through 11 teaches us. Christ in you will make your dry bones live. Christ in you will make your dry ground wet and flowing with living water. Christ in you will make your barren ground bloom and rejoice. The question is, do you have eyes to see it? Jesus told the disciples of John, go and tell John what you see and what you hear. Church, what do you see and what do you hear? What are you seeing and what are you hearing? Are you seeing Jesus turn the dry ground into pools of water? Are you seeing Jesus make the desert rejoice? Are you seeing Jesus cause a supply of oil that is endless? Or can, or can you only see the shadow, the valley, the trial, the tribulation? Where is your mind fixed? Is it fixed on the Lord or is it fixed on your troubles? I would advise you to get your mind off your troubles and fix them. Fix your mind and fix your eyes on the Lord because he knows how to bring water out of the rock. He knows how to make the desert bloom. He knows how to make streams and rivers and pools flourish in a desert land. He knows how to take a desert and make it a lush garden. That's what God will do in your life. It is what God has done if you are in Christ. You just need to have eyes to see it. You need to pray that God would give you eyes to see. Are you planted in Christ? Are you planted by the rivers of water? Or are you still wandering in the dry, barren wilderness? Here is the call of God. Come to Christ. Come to the waters of life and live. Let's get ready and come to the table and eat the sustenance that he has provided for us that is his body and his blood.
Do not forget where you come from and do not forget where you are going. Do not forget what God has done, who God is, and what He will do. The Lord is leading you to His promise. Do not be distracted, disgruntled, or discouraged. Trust Him, for He knows how to open a way where there is no way. He knows how and where to lead you, even if it seems bitter. He knows how to make bitter sweet. He knows how to make the desert bloom and rejoice. He is the river of living water that is within you. Open your mouth that he may fill it and open your heart and let his living water flow to a dry and thirsty land. You are commanded to take heed, to give ear, and to keep his ways, to love him. For he is the Lord who heals you. Amen.